serving as the inspiration for the 1982 Ridley Scott classic Blade Runner. Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep presents a world knowingly at the end. Radioactive dust smothers the planet, a byproduct of World War Terminus. The healthy ones escape that dying earth into the outer colonies off-world. The sick, the disabled, the elderly are forced to live out their degenerating days on earth the denizens of a dying world still must go to work every day, of course. The weather report tells them at morning coffee how bad the fallout should be for the day, and if they should wear a radiation suit. Some do. Those that will make their way off-world one day. Those that still have the strength to try. Many are already so damaged by the radiation that there just isn't much point. The world they're left in is collapsing under the weight of its own decay, the ruins of a silly, stupid war that cost the humans paradise. The character of J.R. Isidore moved into a radiation zone after the war and slowly became cognitively impaired from exposure. This was common after the end of the world, a whole subclass of people politely called specials. J.R. spends his days isolated, working at an electric animal repair shop. The end of days meant the end of most animals, so humans created robotic facsimiles to remind themselves of what they had lost, what they had destroyed. Electric sheep reminds us the price of such destruction, the pain of consequence. Humanity does not rage against the dying of the light but instead simply lives their lives as best they can in the darkness. A bounty hunter named Rick Deckard still chases status symbols to fill the hole of a failing marriage. He longs for an animal, a real living animal to take care of. He could only afford an electric sheep. Throughout the book, he hunts androids that live a similar life as the specials, at the end of the book, he can finally afford the down payment for a living goat. For a moment, he's completed. This is what will get his confidence back. Status in a decaying world. In another moment, his goat is murdered. His status taken away, but his life unchanged. Searching for something, he turns from the material to the metaphysical. A new religion called Mercerism sprouts up after the end of the world. Members engage with a device called an empathy box. The center of that experience is a man named Wilbur Mercer and his climb up a mountain as he's pelted with rocks. The empathy box users all experience it together and through that shared suffering find comfort in their life on a dying earth. Knowing they're not alone is a cornerstone of Mercerism. Never mind that the real Wilbur Mercer was an actor named Al Jerry and his climb up the mountain, a staged production, his religion fabricated. Rick Deckard knows this, and he still sees Mercer outside the empathy box. Mercer shepherds him, the false prophet having outgrown his origins. Because what the myth of Mercer provided... The comfort of community at the end of days far outweighed any need 
for the truth. Do you think Deckard is a replicant? I think he is. I'll tell you I'll tell you why. Well, first and foremost, there is the fact that Ridley Scott has said numerous times in interviews that he thinks Ridley that he thinks Deckard is is a replicant. And he made the movie, you know. I mean that is the meta text there, yeah. Yeah. I mean it 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 kind of buries the hatchet right in the lead, you know. Um, but but, well, there's, but, there's a, but there's a lot of gray area because about the gray area. Sure, because you know the, the main the main bit of gray area, um, maybe not the main, but one of the big things is Harrison Ford apparently really hates the idea that Deckard is a replicant, and really? it's kind of and it's kind of just sort of played along with it because he didn't want to cause a stink. But like back when they were filming the movie, that was actually a big point of contention between himself and Ridley Scott. Because he he argued that the audience deserved at least one real human character that they could root for in the movie, but I'm going to tell you what I think, and this is as someone who's you know written essays and stuff about Blade Runner for class. Um, it doesn't matter if Deckard is a replicant or a human, because if you think it matters that Deckard is a replicant or a human, you've missed the entire point of the movie and the book or whatever. The point is that it shouldn't matter. The point is that if he's a replicant, he basically has the same rights and re- ability to reason, the same emotions, the same humanity as a you know free-range, you know, natural-grown, organic human. So, why does it matter if he's a human or a replicant? If anything, making him a replicant makes it more interesting because then, and, because then we enter into this into this discussion of well, what if what if the entire society is replicants? You know, because I'll, I'll give I'll give a little bit about a way about myself. My favorite part of um, the book, you know, the Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. When I first, when the first time I tried to read it, I didn't finish reading it the first time I tried to read it because I had a horrible because atten- I have a horrible attention span, and it ended up taking me listening to it on Audible to actually finish it. But the first time I tried to read it, I got to about the point where he's at the the fake police station. The police yeah. station that's like peopled with replicants, and I was like, I was blown away by that shit, because I was like, you're basically telling me there's an entire fake society living under the skin of mainstream human society in this sort of post-apocalyptic world where replicants are just doing their own thing and living their own way, and you know, again, you know, you know, you know enough about me to know that, or, or to probably understand, that's where I got the idea for shadow play. That's basically part and partial where shadow play comes from. It's basically the idea that there could be a secret society of humanoid replicants or or androids or synthetics or whatever we want to call them living under the surface of regular human society, and human society doesn't notice it because we just don't enter because because we're not we're not in tune enough with our own emotions and our own humanity to understand. Oh, something's going on here. It's it's it kind of comes back to that old that old ad that old line from uh, I want to say um, Isaac Asimov about how you know if the stars only came out once every thousand years people would make you know intricate religious ceremonies around viewing the stars but as it is they come out every night and we watch the ice capades. <laughs> That's pretty much how it is with these with these with these replicants in this in, in the book especially but also in the movies and 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 even more so in the sequel which we could get into in a little bit. 
Um, you know, we've got this secret society of replicants that's trying to exist, you know, under the thumb of humans who are their creators and oppressors. Um, and they basically just want to be left alone and say, hey, you know, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't give us a license to exist. You create us, to be, you create us from the ground up to be slaves. So we're going to eke out, we're going to eke out our own existence. Yeah. What, what is your favorite difference between the book and the movie? My favorite difference between the book and the movie, um, honestly, and it's weird because they're so different that yes. I don't really, I don't really consider them. All, I almost don't consider them the same story because I mean, Philip K. Dick's work is kind of to sci-fi literature what David Lynch's movies are to genre fiction. You know, it's basically taking the weird and dialing it up to eleven, dialing it up till the knob falls off. Um, if you ever read, if you ever read, or got, if you ever get the chance to read some of his later fiction, especially, it's very weird. Um, what would you recommend? Um, well, maybe not. Maybe not even just his later fiction, because all of his stuff. You know, the, the, the classic, the classic trope about Philip K. Dick is that he's basically the guy who postulated what would it be like if we didn't know the difference between real and fake, which obviously comes through in in Do Android's Dream, but we also sure. see it in The Man in the High Castle, which you've probably heard of because of the TV show version. Um, the thing about the man in the high castle is that this is something that I, that I found that blew me away and apparently really warped the mind of one of my very close friends who's in, in, who's in my creative writing group. Um, there's a part in that movie, in that, in that novel, and for the sake of you, if you, if you don't know, and for the sake of your listeners, um, viewers, whoever, um, the, point, the, the entire plot of the man in the high castle is it's an alternate history where the Axis won World War II. And like the eastern two-thirds of the United States are controlled by the Nazis. And, you know, um, the, the West Coast is controlled by the Japanese. And there's this buffer state down going down the Rocky Mountains that neither side controls. And then it, 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 throughout the novel, it just peppers you with, with little bits of world building about how screwed up the world is because of the Axis won. Like, you know, they, like it, it, it frequently refers to these like horrible experiments the Nazis did where they basically depopulated all of Africa using bio oh no yeah so it's like it's pretty dark but the thing that really gets mind warping is as it gets towards maybe like the second third or the third third of the book there's a character in there who he walks he's 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 living in japanese san francisco which is like the, the capital of the japanese pacific states and he walks outside and he looks up and he's he's shocked because all of a sudden he sees this thing that shouldn't be there but what it's what it's alluded to, what, what it's insinuated, or what it's um, what we're supposed to interpret it to be is it's basically the 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 Alpha Mount Freeway or whatever it is. It's the like Pacific, it's the Pacific Coast Highway, which right. doesn't exist in the world of the book, but it exists in our world. Because um, again, to to give another another example, uh, there's a, there's a through there's a thread there's a thread in this book where. There's a character, the, the, the eponymous man in the high castle, is a book writer who wrote a book where the Allies won World War II. And it's like a book within the book. And a big part of the plot is that the Nazis and the Japanese want to catch this guy. He lives in the buffer states. Um, he wants, they want to catch him and stop him from publishing these books because, of course, they're sedition because they find them seditious. But what's interesting about these books, it's not an alternate reality where the Allies won where it's our reality. 
it's an alternate alternate reality where like the British took over the world. Really? So it's like we've got we've got alternate realities within alternate realities within alternate realities. And it's basically asking how could you tell if what you were living in was the real reality based on only your own experiences living within it. Okay, now I have to read Man of the High Castle. Yes. So yes, I, I highly recommend that one. I haven't read a whole lot of his other work, but I've read about it. And no. I, I remember studying it like in Mike Hughes' uh, science fiction class um, at, at, IUP, at IUPUI and you know some other places like that. And it is some very weird stuff where it's like, um, I, st I, I have a book on my Audible that I've been meaning to finish called, um, oh God, what's it called? Maybe the, the Transmigration of Timothy Archer. I, I, may be, I, may be mis I may be misnaming it. I may be thinking of a different one. There's one where, no, the, the Three Stigmata of Palmer, Palmer Eldridge, that's the one I'm thinking of. There's one, this guy comes back from Alpha Centauri after a like exploration mission, and it's basically insinuated that he became a god in Alpha Centauri, and he now has the ability to alter reality by well, using drugs. Cool. Yeah. Oh. Like, not just alter reality, like, oh, yeah, altered states, far out, man. Like, you know, if he, like, when he takes these drugs, he can actually alter other people's reality. Like a shared hallucination or just like, yeah. I guess that's the question. Yeah, exactly. Is it a hallucination or is he actually altering reality? Because Philip K. Dick is, Philip K. Dick's, Dick's fiction is weird. That's just, we'll just leave it at that. I, I am excited to investigate him more. I only know him from Electric Sheep. Yep. Uh, my, I like the world building of Electric Sheep better than Blade Runner, but I think overall the Blade Runner movie is a much tighter story. Yeah. Because they take out a lot of key elements of Electric Sheep, like Mercerism, which is this yep. weird yep. sort of fake religion that pops up. It doesn't really have to do with any sort of like, salvation so much as a way for people to not feel alone as the radiation slowly kills them yep and i can interesting fact about that and going back to man of the high castle i watched in preparation for our talk about this i watched a retrospective slash review about blade runner so there was a guy named oliver harper who has a channel on youtube where he does things he does videos that he calls retrospective slash review and he basically goes in depth about the plot, the world building, the, the actual production of these movies, how they came to be. He basically, you know, go, does an in-depth. It's kind of like a mini documentary. Like the one about Blade Runner, I'm pretty sure, is about 40 minutes long. So not as long as, say, uh, well, you know, then you've got Dangerous Days, which is like the actual making of Blade Runner that they came out with, I think, around the time of maybe sometime in the late 90s, early 2000s. It's like an hour and a half. But mm -hmm. um but the Oliver Harper video, the thing that the one the thing that I'm getting that I was um, that I brought that brought it up to to reference, he actually talks about how apparently the concept of replicants, or as you as you're aware, um, Philip K. Dick called them androids. He didn't come up with replicants. That's actually a thing they came up with for the movie. But sure. androids in the book, the concept of them being like emotionally stunted, he came up with that uh, while he was researching Man in the High Castle, which came out like six years earlier really um, yeah because um electric sheet came out in i think 68 and man of the high castle came out in 62 and so both both books from both books of the 60s um 
but when he was researching Man of the High Castle, he used, he he really he was he was doing he I supposedly he was um in his research he started thinking well what would it be like if the Nazis were actually able to create this like Aryan supermen that they that they wanted to create and he got and apparently in his in his line of reasoning was well you know these these people who would be like perfect humans they probably wouldn't be all that perfect because you know they're they'd be socialized in a world that was like post post-apocalyptic and so on and so forth Definitely. so that's kind of that's that's kind of where the the idea of replicants came from at least in the movie maybe not so much in the book but definitely for the movie because you know you've got um i know i've seen other in other in other like documentary videos and things people talk about how rutger hauer was specifically cast to play roy batty because so good was, yes because he was because he was like this perfect you know Aryan superman like he's exactly. the, he's <laughs> the giant tall beefy blonde-haired blue-eyed european guy yeah like yep, exactly so and and, yeah. and, that, and that was on purpose because they yeah. wanted it to be that way and they wanted they wanted to have that, that the dichotomy of having a character who would who who fits into that role yeah. as this slave to the corporate empire of Tyrell Corporation and you know the human colonization and off-world colonization efforts and so on and so forth. So it's that's one of the things that really draws me to this story is how it's playing with these different with, with these notions of how you know how human society forms and how how we how it grows and the outcomes of the different decisions we make and things like how we you know because because obviously you know that I'm not the first to say this, so I'm just I'll, 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 I'll preface by saying that. But there's in, in science fiction the the idea the 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 concept of sending people to other planets and colonizing other planets, whether it be something as close as the moon or Mars or something as far away as a thousand light years or whatever, all those concepts almost in, without fail can can be boiled down to a metaphor for colonialism and the yes. evils of colonialism and. Um, that's one of the things that, that that's that's the interesting thing about Blade Runner is that you know there's the the off-world colonies are basically are not maybe not the ultimate MacGuffin but they're definitely a MacGuffin because you know you see like in the opening minutes of the movie you see this blimp advertising the off-world colonies but they never show us the off-world colonies in, in either the first movie or the second movie we never see them in the book but they're talked about um, yeah. but that's one of the interesting draws to it is, you know, a, a different sci-fi movie would take us, hey, yeah, let's go visit the off-world colonies. That'll be fun. And this one, they're almost, they're, they're like the thing that happens over here or the other, where the other, where the eye isn't watching, that's causing things back where the eye is watching to be as bad as they are. I kind of took the off-world colonies, especially in the book, mm -hmm. as um, the promise of heaven and salvation denied. Yeah. To the, the to the to the the survivors of World War Terminus. Yep. Where, you know, like there's a character uh, named J.R. Isidore in the book, and I think he's J.F. Buckley in the movie. Sebastian. Or Sebastian. There you go. Yep. Who has a much bigger role in the book, and he was a normal person, but then after being exposed to the radiation, becomes cognitive cognitively impaired, and 
they go so much deeper into the the the, the nuclear fallout um but also none of that really matters right yeah. or you could if you could it's interesting but like narratively speaking and you and i have had countless conversations about like pacing and narrative narrative mm -hmm. flow and editing if you could pull something out of a story and it still works then by god it shouldn't be in that story yeah and with blade runner they pulled out all of the fat anything because there's i mean i just did this myself recently i just finished rap production on tales of liberated earth book three release valve and cool there was a, a whole section yeah thank you there was a whole section there where like there's two people talking and then there's this kind of part where up they're like oh this is what the multiverse is right the multiverse has nothing to do with the rest of the story, but it was to set up something going down the line in a future installment. But then I'm listening to this and I'm listening to it and I'm like, oh, this needs to go. You love this. You think this is the coolest fucking thing you've done, but this 400 words here stops the story, goes in a different direction and then isn't really referenced. But if you pull it out, and slam those two pieces together. Holy shit, does it does the pacing work? And Blade Runner does a similar thing. Yep. Where they pull out mercerism. Decker doesn't have a wife anymore. Um, you know, they pull out <clears throat> the 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 police station full of androids. Mm -hmm. They just have it be a bounty hunter chasing robots. Right. Yep. They 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 strip. They have this complicated story, and they strip it down to the simplest possible version. And that's why you and I are talking about this movie that mm -hmm. came out forty years ago. Yeah, it's a piece of brilliance. It's poetry. Yep. And again, going kind of tying tying from you know what that bare what the bare bones version of that story is. Let me run this by it. Do you think Deckard is the good guy? Because I saw something, and I'll I'll admit I only saw this. Recently, like maybe a couple weeks ago, I saw a tweet or something or other discussing this point, and it blew my mind. They basically said, you realize Deckard is not the good guy. He is a essentially corporate-funded police assassin chasing after escaped slaves who are just trying to live their lives. Well, yes. To, to a certain extent, you know, depending but on how we... Those slaves kill a lot of innocent people. Yeah. Like... Slavery bad, murder yeah. also bad. <laughs> One does not really cancel out the other. Both are bad. I know. I'm I'm a very simple person. I try to just just streamline my morality down to its most basic elements. Murder bad, slavery bad. <laughs> both things are bad. If person does both things, they're bad. Yeah. Um. I. But I mean to put a finer more serious point to it you know it there's not really a good guy in it it's, yeah which is which is fitting with the noir aesthetic yeah that's very the much noir, a noirish thing yeah and really there, no, there be no good guys you know um the more great the replicants are slaves used for mining right 
that's really bad. That's fucking terrible. Um, also, they murder a lot of humans. Very bad. So that kind of takes away well, remember, empathy. Remember, the replicants that we see in the movie, at least the, the, the group of replicants we see in the movie, you know, Roy and Zora and, yes. and um, God, what's the guy's name? Leon and Pris. Yeah. They actually didn't kill all those people. They did kill people, but all the only people we know of for a fact they killed, other than Tyrell, obviously, who, you know, that's a whole other discussion we can get into in a second. like a fucking grape. Yeah. The, the only other people we know of that they killed are the crew of the shuttle they stole to get back to Earth so they could try and get more life. Yeah. Yeah, because well, because if you if you remember, it, it mentions at the start of the movie that it was a bloody mutiny by an yeah. off-world combat team that killed like that, that killed a whole bunch of people. But sure. I don't think the replicants in the in the, in the story it actually killed a whole bunch of people. I'd ha I'd have to confirm myself on that, but I don't think they killed as many people. Again, they they killed the crew of a shuttle, but again, the crew of the shuttle are you know probably tried to fight back you know it's not it's not like they just rebelled and, and, and slaughtered a bunch of innocent yeah no man i'm gonna call i'm gonna call no on that one dog like <laughs> you know like you can't killing people's bad <laughs> like there's no if you say killing people's bad but it's wrong there's, it, killing people is bad is a complete sentence now so that, because if we're looking at this from a white hat, black hat, black hat narrative perspective, mm -hmm. if there's an absolute good character, an absolute bad character, there's not that there. But that's also not life either. And no one person is any one thing. Because, you know, I've known you for a hot minute, and you know me, and I know I've rebooted who I am as a person I don't know, 10 times since I turned 18, something like that. Like, so have you. And, and so it's kind of like when the doctor regenerates in Doctor Who, you just become this new yeah. version of yourself. But, you know, no one person is inherently totally good or evil because we're all capable of lots of things. So the question is, is Deckard a good guy not really, but also neither of the replicants. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, at that kind point, of... it's who's, who do you feel more sympathy towards? Yeah. You know, or who do you relate towards the most? Mm -hmm. That's who you're going to feel is the protagonist. Maybe not good guy, but the protagonist, yeah. right? Because everyone sees themselves in a story and, like, for me in Star Wars, I see myself as a stormtrooper because well, I kind of, like, occupied a desert country once with a whole bunch of other people. So, like, well, if I'm anybody in this story, I'm a stormtrooper, clearly. And I can see where you would see yourself in kind of the replicants. Kind of a person that looks like everyone else, but is very different and tries to, like, figure out how to blend in and stuff. And is apparently super strong, and I've seen you climb walls. So, you know. I don't remember that. We reprogrammed you. Oh. You're a robot, Nick. Okay. Yeah. I'll accept that. It explains yeah. a lot. <laughs> it does explain a lot, doesn't it? Explains what it smells like motor oil, motor oil when I pee. 
we did buy you at the discount store. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, but what you say is true. And, that, and it dovetails really nicely into the bit between Roy and Tyrell, sort of yeah. you know, going back to what I mentioned a minute ago, where he talks about how, you know, he's done questionable things, you know, things he, they would, things he wouldn't be let into heaven for. Um, yeah. There's a bit of fan art, I want to say, that I could link you if you wanted to maybe clip it in as B-roll or something. Um where it shows, it shows like it's actually like a, like an like an illustrated version of Devroy's speech, or Devroy's tears and rain speech, where it shows him like yeah, at the battle at the battle of Orion's the show, off the shoulder of Orion or whatever. Um, yeah. really cool, and it shows you know these 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 replicant characters have done and seen things that no human would believe, especially humans in a sort of drab, mundane existence of you know retro twenty nineteen, yeah. but. Um, you know, it's also stuff that they don't exactly want to have memories of. They'd rather have the memories like the ones we see in the movie of them in the in the photographs, where they're just sort of living, where they're just sort of living a peaceful existence. That's the memories they want. But again, they don't. They're they're not allowed to have those memories because they're basically pumped out of a tube, like a like a squirt of toothpaste, and then yeah. said, "Hey, we're going to send you into the world, and we're gonna, you're you're going to be like death squads, or you know." Um, that that goes towards you know people the grass being always greener on the other side and you know it's I look at a lot of things like I have had something like over 30 addresses my entire life mm -hmm. right I'm 35 we've lived in this house for I don't know five six seven years something like that and so I saw a lot of the world, especially really early, and I saw a lot of parts of the country. It's it's, but I've known people that uh, grow up in one address, maybe two, maybe one or two, right? But it's just pretty consistent. Like, oh, they just moved down the street. They didn't go from Kentucky to Alaska, you know, yeah. and and there's a difference in that because I'm pretty good at kind of sparking a friendship right off the bat, but I'm kind of terrible at long-term friendships, right? I'm not great. I drop off the fucking radar for like a minute, right? You know this about me, but also you saw me talking to that Ghostbuster today at the convention we went to, like we became best friends because they recognized the army pit on its head. Yeah. And he told me his whole life story and it was fantastic. And I'm like, oh, I got to like meet this amazing individual person that I get to, you know, I, I, I so hope I bump into him again at the next con with the Ghostbusters. And so I think about what you said with the drab, dreary office life and the mundanity, wanting that excitement about the things you wouldn't believe and and the attack ships off the or how does how does how does tears and rain go? I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships off and on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears and rain. Time to die. Yes. So the replicants 
longed for because this is where I can kind of relate to the reference <laughs> thing. They longed for that piece of stability. They want the mundanity. They want, you know, breakfast pancakes and making your bed and mowing the lawn. But also Ooh. the people that experience the less mundanity, the stability. Well, I wouldn't call it mundane. I'd call it stability. You know, they sometimes look at all of the excitement in the world, that all of the things that are possible. And they have kind of a skewed version of it, or at least um, an artificial version of it due to our yeah. media. And they say, oh, I want to do that. Exactly. Like, exactly. And, and they're not wrong. They're just uninformed. People who have stability want excitement. People who have excitement want stability. Exactly. Um, I know. I the grass is always greener, like you said. What's that? The grass is always greener, like you said. It's sort of a, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, a weird vagary of the modern contemporary human condition that we always want what we don't have. Exactly. I. Because I, because because again, that, that's a very good point you bring up. That's something I was actually about to bring up, but, and I'm glad you made the point. Is that all those people we see sort of just slumming it, literally on the streets of you know, 20, of Los Angeles, circa 20, November 2019, in the movie? They probably wish they were on. They, they in fact, I'm sure they wish they were on the off-world colonies, or even you know, getting into all sorts of swashbuckling adventures like the replicants do. They would probably hate it. With, when they were doing that, but it kind of comes back to something I've said for a long time, which is that things we hate in the moment, we often look back on very fondly, and things we and things we think are very cool in the moment, we often look back on like, what the fuck was I thinking? I yeah, it's sometimes it's both. Sometimes you look yeah. back and you're like, what the fuck was I thinking? That was really cool. I'm also glad I survived. I probably shouldn't have. And there's, you know. <laughs> but, um, I'm gonna go pee. Sure. And I'll be back. I'm gonna yeah. just gonna put the phone down. But I'll be back. Ah! No! 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 I can't believe it. All of the toilet paper's gone. Okay. So back from the ad break slash P break, what were your thoughts on the Blade Runner sequel? I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, I will say this. I'll try and preempt your, your question. I still love Blade Runner more. But Got for it. me, it's more, it's more a question of it being a Blade Runner being a known, in, a known quantity, something that I, I won't say grew up with because I it's funny. I really only saw – the first Blade Runner about five years before um, the sequel came out. Obviously, there's a lot. There's folks who waited 35 years to see the sequel and were blown away and and, and loved it and everything. Um, I I was kind of a late comer, but the thing is the the, the reason the thing I love most about Blade Runner the thing the reason I love the movie more than the book is because I could get lost in that world. You know, yeah. that's that's one of the reasons why I love the making of uh, documentary because it talk or, or documentaries about it because it talks about the links they went to, 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 you know, pun intended, to replicate the world of the near future. Yeah. Um, and it feels like, you know, there's, again, that, that same retrospective review, the one by Oliver Harper, he talks about, he, he shows clips from the making of where, where there's interviews with um, 
one of the guys from the production design team who did work on like logos that you never even see in the movie. It's like the, the, he, he analogized it with there's, there's a film called Redbeard by Akira Kurosawa. And one of the, and that, that movie is about it is about a doctor in Japan. Um, long story to just sort of make a long story very short. But, uh, um, but the, the point, the point he's making is that in the movie Redbeard, there's medicine in the cabinets and in, in the drawers of the doctor's of the doctor's office set that we never see in the movie, but they're in there for the sake of realism, and that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of detail that Ridley Scott and his production team had on Blade Runner, where you could basically walk onto that set that was basically just you know a set that's been used a, a thousand times before as, as on the back lot of uh, of whatever studio it was in L.A. But they made it into this, this little microcosm of Los Angeles circa 20, November 2019. And I could just live in that world because it's one of those deals where, you know, you might think this is counterintuitive, but for someone who gets, for someone with like sensory issues, having that, like all that little minute detail, it's, it's almost comforting. Because it's like, ooh, there's, oh, there's something to look at over here. Ooh, there's something to look at over here. Ooh, there's something to look at over here. You know, there's, it's, it's, it's a kind of, it's a kind of overstimulation that I can control because, you know, I, I, you know if anything, it's, it's, it, it's probably part of it is because it's in a movie, you know, I don't actually have to live there and deal with it every day. Whereas if I were to live there and deal with it every day, I would probably slowly go insane because it's so cluttered and messy and, and, uncoordin and uncoordinated. But when it's in a movie, you know, you can turn this movie on and escape into this fantasy world for two hours and then the movie's done, and I can come back to my own world where I where I control, you know, what goes where. You were so funny in Desk Replay. I could see you like there's just movies scattered everywhere. It's unalphabetized. It's a it's a hot mess, and I could just see you like you're like don't don't reorganize it because like you know if you go down that rap, my wife's the same way. We'll go to Goodwill. It's so to like alphabetize all of the movies and get them and. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, they just need to be like, you got to put all the national treasures next to each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had a thing. Oh, right. So... There's two versions of Blade Runner. There's one with Deckard's narration. There's one without. What are your thoughts on the difference? There's actually like seven versions. Oh, there you go. Let's yeah. talk about the different versions. Sure thing. Um, and I'll try and give a quick, because this is something else that Oliver Harper talks about. So I just, I just got refreshed on this. So I should hopefully know. There's the theatrical version, or sure. rather the U.S. theatrical version that has the narration, has a happy ending. Uh, where Deckard and, Ra and Rachel go off into the countryside, which makes no fucking sense, because if, if that beautiful countryside exists, why would anyone live in the ugly, dingy Los Angeles? Um, yeah. You know, basically akin to the, the real world. Uh, that I digress. Um, but then th there's the European cut, which had, which had some more violent scenes that didn't make it into the U.S. theatrical cut. There's the work print version that had some alternate, cut, alternate scenes as well, and had an alternate soundtrack because Vangelis had not finished the famous soundtrack that is so good that's in the final movie, that's in the finished version of the movie. Um, let's see, there's a director's cut that came out in like 
1994 or 97, I want to say, sometime in the 90s. It was, it was like it was over 10, it was at least 10 years after the movie came out. They came out with a director's cut. And um, that was kind of the start of, oh, we can actually correct things back to what they should have been. And then the version that I always watch is the final cut, which came out in 2007 for the 25th anniversary, um, where Ridley Scott actually had full creative control, got to go in and fix all the little mistakes and things that he thought were, were, were shouldn't have been done the way they were. Like one of the, one of the things you might not think about is in the theatrical cut, um, when, when Zora gets killed by Deckard or, or Deckard kills Zora, um, the actress, they actually had to use it because it was a stunt double. It was her stunt double. There's a scene where you can see the stunt double wearing this horrible wig that's supposed to approximate Joanna Cassidy's hair, and it's very noticeable. So what they actually did in the final cut is they went in and like rotoscoped in a digital copy of, of Joanna Cassidy from like 2006 or so that was supposed to replace that scene or replace like you know frames of that scene and make it to, to, to fix to fix the, the actual final cut of the movie. Wow, so just little things like that. Yeah, they 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 went it all in. They went whole hog. That's yeah, cool. I I think. I think the final cut is the definitive version. Just again, for the same reason I th that I th for the same or one of the same reasons that I think that Deckard is a replicant, and that's that Ridley Scott had had full creative control and got to do what he intended to do. It's kind of like um, the 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 flip side to what George Lucas did with Star Wars in 1997, which is yeah. you know he went in and did added all these things that he thought he <laughs> should have had from the very beginning, but you know. The difference is when he changed Star Wars, he made actual like big changes. He 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 added a whole bunch of ships to the Battle of Yavin. He added like entire scenes to the early parts of the movie, you know, stuff like that. That Greedo didn't really shot first. Yeah, yeah. Greedo shot first. He, he 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 changed the fundamental aspect of several very key parts of the movie. Whereas in Blade Runner, all it's doing is restoring it to what it, what it should have been. Because it, you know it make it has the unicorn scene. Which is another clue that the Deckard may be a replicant. Um, it restores, uh, it, or rather, it takes away the narration. It just it does things right. I think. I didn't think the narration really added too much. Yeah, like I feel it, the same way. And, and granted, it's been years since I've seen it, but I recently watched uh, the one, the final cut that came out in '07, mm -hmm. and you know. And maybe, and granted, like, I've seen Blade Runner a bunch of times, but I didn't need any, you know, narration on it, because I know Harrison Ford didn't want to do it, so yeah, I don't, yep. you know, need Harrison Ford boredly reading the script or whatever. And the reason he didn't want to do it is because he knew it didn't need it. The only yeah. reason they added that damn narration is because the studio was up in arms and thought, oh, well, the audience won't be able to follow this weird story, so we need to tack on a narration so they can follow along. And, of course, the rest is history because, you know, basically without fail, every time a studio or a studio executive or whoever interferes in the creative process of a movie, it makes things worse, almost without fail. Typically, you know, yes. You have, you have to search hard to find a case where the studio actually saved the day by interfering. You know, and in this case, you know, again, like you say, we've got Harrison Ford who understands, listen, all you're doing is reiterating what's going on on the screen. So it's not really <laughs> necessary. And he's just boredly reading off this narration that could, at least, if, you know, if it was actually necessary, could have come across, could have made it more like a noir film. Because lots of noir yeah. films have narration. You know, it's basically a, 
it's like a Raymond Chandler or Nashville Hammett type situation. That's kind of what they're going for, but they did not get that because it wasn't necessary, the information they were getting across. And Harrison Ford, who knows it's not necessary, is not is, is basically phoning it in. So you've got this very uninvolved sort of lazy, not almost lazy uh, uh, narration. I get it. Um, yeah, and to go back to Blade Runner 2049, mm -hmm. I, um, I remember watching it, and I remember the part where they're fighting in a boat, or like they're in a down shuttle craft, and they're fighting in yeah. that, or something, and I remember thinking, wow, this movie's like 30 minutes too long. Yeah, and, that's, the, that's the impression I get from a lot of people's reactions to it. And, like, I, there's a lot of good there, right? And it's like we talked about with narrative structure before. Peeling away the things that don't need to be there. You know, killing your darlings, no matter how wonderful they are. And I don't really know Blade Runner 2049 well enough to be like, oh, you should have just pulled these parts out. But I know... Because it, it does expand the world. Um, it repeats a lot of the beats of the first one, but it also puts a really new spin on it. It, it, it deepens the world. It shows what this, what the Blade Runner universe would look like 30 years, 40 years later, whatever. Yep. And you feel it and you, you buy it. And of course the humans would fuck things up even worse and then there'd be like an ecological disaster and then people would be like eating bugs because all the plants are dead yeah. and they're like what like slug farms or something or yeah, like, like nematodes yeah like and you know and at that point like you said it's the the replicant human hologram it's not really mattering as much yeah. And and I think that's as the world kind of slowly crumbles and things, you know, as Earth gets worse, the artificial will be as le the least or will be less distinct from the organic. And after a while, no one can tell the difference unless you can just like wave your hand through somebody. You know, if the copy becomes, it's, it's basically the ship of Theseus argument, you know, uh, yeah. if, the, if, the, if the copy becomes a perfect representation of the original, then what's the fucking difference? 